Hi, and welcome. I'm Steve Martorano, and this is The Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, The Behavioral Corner. Please, hang around a while. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Behavioral Corner. It's a little rainy uh, today, so I hope you're dressed appropriately. We'll get under the canopy here on the by the by the bodega in the corner. We'll be okay. Uh, I'm Steve Martorano, your host and guide through this. You know how it works. I hope you do. We're here to talk about a very broad topic, uh, behavioral health, and that encompasses a lot of things specifically and even more things in a general sense because the way we behave affects everything, the way we feel spiritually, emotionally, and physically. It touches upon issues we often do of substance abuse and uh, mental health issues. Uh, we're focusing, though, on an even broader realm, and that's what we know about our history, as a matter of fact, because we know the story of the founding fathers, chapter and verse. We know their names, and we know Washington, and we know Jefferson, and we know Adams. What I never knew a lot about were the founding mothers and sisters and wives. I had that smattering, same as a lot of you guys. We know who Molly Pitchard was. We certainly know who Betsy Ross was. And we certainly know Dolly Madison and, and George's wife, Martha. So we know all those ladies. And they all have several things in common, one of which is they're all white. So that can't be the case. Certainly, there are women of color who played an important part in the nation's history. I wanted to find out about that. And so I got lucky. And look who wandered onto the corner. She's the director of writing of the Mighty Writers. We'll tell you about that uh, a little later. Kalela Williams, and she is our guest on the program. Uh, Kalela, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I got a lot of that right, didn't I? I mean, the you know, women in general are sort of left out of that story of the founding of the nation, and certainly women of color are almost nowhere to be found. So we're grateful to have you on that. A little bit about you. You're from Atlanta originally? Yes. How long have you been in Philadelphia? I have been in Philadelphia for about nine years. Mm-hmm. Crazy to think of it, but yes. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by Philadelphia, actually, um, before I ever set foot here, before I even visited, because of the history, because of the history of people of color here. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? For those of us who were born and raised here kind of forget the central part um, that, that the city played a couple of hundred years ago. Kalela is uh, one of those rare individuals who's actually devoted to nonprofits, and she's worked for many of them uh, in the course of her career. She's an accomplished poet and author, and she's written extensively, and her stuff has appeared in a whole lots of places. Uh, And she's now focusing with the Mighty Writers on a couple of interesting areas that she's going to tell us about today. The Mighty Writers, for people who don't know, real quick, Sure. Mighty Writers is a Philadelphia-based organization that teaches kids to think clearly and write with clarity. It is an organization that provides free workshops. Right now, we're all online, but um, workshops, again, are free, and they approach writing from different angles. There's everything from, say, um, there's a workshop called Mighty Brotherhood, which is for Black men to come together and talk about identity and talk about issues that affect them specifically as Black men. There's Mighty Girls Rock, which teaches girls girls to compose music. So again, it's teaching writing, but it's teaching it from an angle that might capture a child's interest. Um, I right now am teaching what we're calling master classes, and these are for especially gifted writers. We're really getting into some detailed work with poetry and fiction. So it's a lot of fun teaching sort of, in some ways, college level ideas to kids. How old are these kids? 
Mighty Writers serves kids from toddlers to 17. The kids who I work with are 12 to 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had uh, we had uh, your leader at Mighty Writers, Tim Whitaker, on the program. We just jumped into it. I loved it because uh, the a group of kids you're dealing with have unique situations in their lives. And expressing themselves is one of the things that they're probably not called upon to do very much. And writing is a great way to get them to do that. So Mighty Writers is just a great, great organization. And uh, more people should be aware of it and supporting it. Anyway. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, focus recently on women of color and history. My interest in history is, it's a very old interest, uh, (laughs) fittingly. Um, In 2019, in January of 2019, I founded an online community called Black History Maven. And that was basically just a sort of way for me to, um, you know, I was always posting articles about Black history and I thought, gosh, you know, I'm I'm just always posting these on my personal page. What if I created a page that was just about Black history and I could post articles as I find them and, and maybe spark discussion among more than just my friends and more than just my little circle. Mm-hmm. And I also thought about doing tours. So I started doing tours with Airbnb experiences. And I also did some community tours with through Black History Maven. And these were tours focused on women's history, on African-American history in Philadelphia, The pandemic put a little bit of a stop to that. I had, I guess you could call it a costume made, but my costume was, um, it's a 1778 costume and it's hand sewn. The person who made it is an expert in 18th century sewing techniques. Um, And so there's just a lot there. But in the meantime, while I was waiting for that to be ready, I actually um, did some work with the Museum of the American Revolution and I borrowed some clothing from them, also hand sewn. Um, (laughs) This is interesting. When you talk about an expert in 18th century sewing, uh, I'm guessing that most of the clothes those people wore in those days were probably made by African-American women, right? I don't know if I would say most, and I think it would depend on regions, but a fair amount of clothing in, like, if you look at the American South, a fair amount was made by African-American women, but a fair amount was actually made by white women. Even white Southern women who we think of as plantation mistresses were expected to be industrious and frugal. And so in many cases, they um, Mm -hmm. used enslaved labor to do things that they considered sort of beneath them. And sewing wasn't necessarily that. That being said, there is a history of African-American women making clothing. In fact, um, one of my favorite stories in Philadelphia is that of a woman named Emily Davis, who was just a simple everyday person, nobody famous, but she left behind diaries and she was a seamstress. So she sewed clothing for a living and and sort of glimpses like that give you an idea of work. We're here to talk about women, but with regard to uh, haberdashery, I may have this completely wrong, but I think I read somewhere George Washington's tailor, I guess, became an international celebrity. I mean, he went to Europe and designed clothes over there. That's in the back of my head. It may have been someone else completely. Anyway, at the beginning, I mentioned that that we know uh, plenty about the founding fathers and very little about the women involved in that period of time. How sparse would you say our knowledge is of the women in history, uh, particularly the women of color? Sure. A lot of what we use when we study history, we tend to use written records. That's what we have. We have letters, we have diaries, we have newspaper articles, media, and women often, I mean, women in general, much less women of color, were often not documented. Or if they were documented, 
those documents were not necessarily saved. There was a tradition, for instance, of women burning their letters because if you wrote something that could be considered untoward or, or anything that just could be considered um, something that you didn't want left behind, you know, you want to be modest. And so you, um, in many cases, women might have burned their letters um, and we don't have them. So like, for instance, Martha Washington burned all of her letters from uh, George Washington. So we don't have that correspondent. So <laughs> There's a lot of actors uh, today, uh, famous men who wished the women they knew had uh, <laughs> right. done, done that. <laughs> right. You can't burn no. an email. <laughs> exactly. Can't burn a text. <laughs> Tweets will get you every time. So the record is uh, wiped out because of 18th century mores rather than anything else, right? Right. And when we think about women of color in many circumstances, you either have a situation where literacy is limited. And remember, literacy was limited in all classes um, in the 18th and 19th century, but it certainly was much more limited in many cases by law for Black women um, specifically. So you have that. Um, you also have limited resources. Paper was was not just something that you just grabbed right. <laughs> you right. know, from the CBS. Right. Right. Although the Federalist Papers have endured, a lot of papers did endure anyway. With regard to women of color in Philadelphia that you've taken a look at and are interested in telling people about, do you have a favorite a woman who stands out? Um, right now, my favorite, I would say, if I had to have a favorite, is there's been a lot of conversation about Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who um, was a 19th century poet who uh, no one ever heard of, um, or very few people have heard of. She's actually enjoying a resurgence right now, but she lived a long time. She was born in, um, I believe it was 1825, and she died in 1913. So she lived a very long breath of life, and she was an activist and a poet. She did everything from, uh, she was a Rosa Parks on trolley cars that were desegregated. She would sit down and refuse to get up, because at that point, trolley cars were uh, the segregation of them strictly limited Black folks' movement throughout the city, which meant they couldn't go to work. They couldn't do their own activist work. Um, she also, uh, again, was a poet, and she would host uh, salons that would raise money for everything from Union soldiers to, you know, during the war to after the war to uh, orphan children, uh, you name it. And she was also a suffragist. She um, advocated for women's right to vote. Yeah. Must have been a real joy to be that far ahead of your time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm sure I've even thought about this myself. How segregated was a city like Philadelphia in the uh, 19th century? So there was definitely neighborhoods were a little bit more the seventh ward, which uh, at the time stretched from um, Spruce to Bainbridge, river to river. It was sort of a corridor where a lot of most African-Americans in the city lived by the you know mid 19th century. That's the ward that uh, W.E. Dubois did the uh, studies on. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, uh -huh. yeah, um, yeah. Most of Philadelphia's black community was concentrated there. But that being said, you still could look at a census report from, you know, that neighborhood during that time, during say the mid 19th century. And you see a lot of folks who were born in Ireland, who were born in Germany, who were born in England or who were born here, but who were listed as white. So there was not as much of say like the enclaves that you might even see more of today. Um, what was segregated was not so much neighborhoods, but communities. So like for instance, if you had a literary circle that you'd have a black literary circle and then you'd have other white literary circles. Schools mm -hmm. were segregated in many mm -hmm. cases. So. so we don't think about that so much. Mm -hmm. Segregation is something that only happened in the deep South, but that of course is not the case. Uh, and the Seventh Ward is a very famous place for students of black history, certainly in Philadelphia. Uh, have you led tours through the Seventh Ward or are you gonna do that again? 
Yeah, I have. Um, I, I was doing them quite a bit before the pandemic hit, and then um, I've stopped. But I, I will be doing some virtual tours through Black History Maven of the Seventh Ward because it's a very important area. It really is. Yeah, yeah, and it's been studied for a long, long time. I don't know how much we've learned, but it's certainly been studied a long, long time. Uh, we're talking to uh, Kalela Williams. She is the director of writing for the Mighty uh, Writers an organization that teaches kids to write. And as you can tell from the name of the site, she's a history maven. I love that. I love that idea. You know, one of the other areas that we're getting to now that you've been involved in is the Founding Sisters, and I love that idea. Tell us a little about a couple of them. Sure. Um, so I also did tours on what I called Founding Sisters. You know, we think of Philadelphia as the place where America began, and women were part of that story. So there's a few people who are interesting. And what I like to do is tell complicated stories, right? History is best served complex. So for instance, we can look at somebody named Peggy Shippen, who was the wife of Benedict Arnold, um, not one of our favorite people in American history. Peggy was sort of maligned uh, during her life as being hysterical and crazy and we don't know very much about her. We have a lot of writings of accounts of how she behaved, but we really don't know what was going on in her mind. You know, if I'm doing a tour and I'm talking about some of the crazy things Peggy Shippen did, I like to think about what is it that we don't know? We don't have her voice. What's left out? And what could be something behind how she's feeling? Well, can you imagine the stories that are left untold about a woman married to the most infamous man <laughs> of her time. That was a very famous family, right? The Shippens family? Yes, Shippen they family. Were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine owned and managed a uh, tavern at 4th and Bainbridge or 5th and Bainbridge back in the day called Shippens. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me that there may be a famous woman involved in that. Of course, Philadelphia was one of the terminuses, is that a word, of the Underground Railroad. Who were the women, and I'm sure there were women in Philadelphia who were uh, involved in that? Oh, my gosh. So many people come to mind. Um, I mentioned Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Obviously, she was involved. I mentioned Emily Davis, the seamstress, the woman who wasn't making a whole lot of money, but she was a member of the uh, Ladies' Union Committee. She was part of the Female Anti-Slavery Committee. You know, she writes in her diaries about running around selling tickets to this benefit or that benefit because she was raising money for escaping enslaved people. You have people who are, I guess, flying under the radar as well as more well-known people. Uh, Harriet Purvis was another person who was involved in that effort along with her husband, Robert Purvis. Um, so we have so many people, just everyday people as well as more elevated names. I'm struck by the names roll from your tongue. I mean, there's so many who are <laughs> literally lost except to scholars like yourself and other uh, real students of uh, history. We don't do anywhere near a good enough job telling the story, the whole story of that period of time. Abolitionists, uh, even in the North, this was a pretty dicey uh, thing to be involved in, right? These women took some risk in getting involved in that movement, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, there's the risk of, obviously, it was illegal, you know, trying to help an enslaved person after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850 was outright illegal. Um, and even before that, it was uh, frowned upon to the point where you could be, I don't know, beaten. Um, so so th there was the physical risk, but there was also the risk of speaking in public at that time, being a woman speaking in public at that time, that was also extremely frowned upon. Um, that was something you did not do. So these women in some ways, um, and obviously the risk was was more or, or the, the frowning upon was bigger for white women than it was for black women because 
the, the tradition of black activism was understood in black communities, but it's to say that women were in some ways risking their reputation to do this, to speak in public. Even when we do know of these women uh, and what they were doing, they are somehow, in spite of their efforts, somehow known because of their attachment to men. My guess is one of the uh, most uh, outstanding names of the founding period of a woman of color is Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings was, like thousands of other women, a piece of property. She was owned, Mm -hmm. but she was owned by a very famous man. He fathered some of her children. These women all had in addition to that, they were carrying around that weight. It's, it's my husband. The only reason they're paying attention to me is my husband. We need to break free of that and just look at them as individuals. I mean, that's part of, I'm sure, what you want to accomplish with this, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think I think to some extent, of course, you know, we still see that today. But I think that, yeah. um, that certainly looking at women through the attachment of either their husbands, their brothers, their fathers, or the attachment of, um, in Sally Hemming's case, which was a very unique case, she was, yes, indeed, the mother of at least four of Thomas Jefferson's children. And she's someone interesting who I like to talk about when I'm uh, standing at the Declaration House on 7th and uh, Market. It's a rebuilt Declaration House. It's not the original, of course. It was rebuilt in the 1930s. But we don't have any record of her necessarily being in Philadelphia ever, even when she sailed to France. It doesn't seem like she went through Philadelphia. But we do know that when Thomas Jefferson was in that Declaration House, Robert Hemings, her brother, was with him. Um, And the Hemings family is part of the Jefferson family. And Sally's story brings us to another point about women of color's history, and that is the idea of sexual assault in women's history. And I'd like to talk about this on tours because I think it's important that to stress that all women were in danger of sexual assault at that time. All women were, especially um, women who were indentured servants, women who were poor, and especially women who were African-American and especially women who were owned by other people. When you don't own your body, it's very hard to, um, you know, the idea of consent is out of the window. So it's important to talk about these things. Yeah, it's, it's awful to think about something like that. I mean, you're right about across the board, women were you know considered property even if they were free white women they sort of belonged to their husbands i mean not that they acquiesced to any of this behavior but it certainly wouldn't be the first thing in their mind is i didn't consent to this was sort of the what was to be expected and endured Mm -hmm. horrible just to contemplate that um so the people you lead on these tours are they of all ages or are they younger people or who are you taking on these tours when you were doing them Generally adults, but I will say that I love when kids are part of these tours. I will be more patient, not more patient, not that I'm usually impatient. Come along! (laughs) (laughs) But I will re-explain things as needed. I want to make sure that the child comes away with an understanding because that's important to me. Are they surprised to find out that there were so many people of color who were involved in those days and had an impact? One of the reasons I mentioned that I was fascinated with Philadelphia before I ever set foot in the city, because, you know, you grow up in the South and you always hear the narrative of slavery and go down Moses and you just hear this like 19th century cotton plantation narrative. And it's so much bigger than that. Um, And Philadelphia being a place where there was a thriving free community 
really was at odds of everything I ever learned in school. And so I wanted to learn more. And so I think that's what surprises people. I think that people just sort of forget that Black folks existed outside of slavery, that Black folks existed in the 18th century and not just the 19th century. Um, I don't want to get too much into this, but I'm curious. You know, I spent time in Boston working and Boston is very similar to Philadelphia, that historical roots thing. But they seemed, this just may be my ignorance, Boston seemed to be more inclined to bring people through that history. I mean, there's the famous Freedom Trail tour that they've been doing forever there. Uh, Is the city up to speed on the kind of things you do? I have not spent a lot of time in Boston for a while. Um, I would like to, and that was actually on my list of things to do before the pandemic hit, because I I haven't really spent time in Boston for about 15 years. And 15 years is a long time when it comes to interpreting Black history. I've got got to ask you about the one other area here, because it leaped off the page at me when I saw the tour, and that is um, scandals. Yeah. what, What sort of scandals were going on? Oh, my goodness. You know, everything from uh, Alexander Hamilton's affair to, you know, obviously I do talk about Peggy Shippen um, because that is um, just so incredibly interesting. And during the Scandals tour, I also talk about things that we consider taboo and that we consider something that we like to talk about. So for instance, sex work in the 18th and 19th century, Um, looking at say like Ben Franklin's many uh, uh, divergences, we'll call them, Um, looking at them, not through the lens of this is salacious, but through the lens of people were human beings and this is how human beings behave. And one of the interesting things about this was I had a teenager take that tour once. And the mom reached out to me and she was like, is it okay if my teen comes? And I was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And I said, you know, this is what we talk about. That is up to you. And the kid came along and I just tried to pretend like he wasn't there (laughs) in that case uh, because I didn't want to sort of like not say anything. And then when the tour was done, he was like, I didn't know history was like this. I like, or can you send me some articles? Like, where can I learn more about this? I want to learn this in history class. And I'm like, I don't know if we're going to ever learn this in class, but I will send you articles. <laughs> well, you know that if you were to put revolutionary scandals on a uh, a list of courses, uh, people would sign up for it. It's a fascinating idea. Let's focus again back on women at this time. You mentioned sex work, which is kind of interesting. Now, we know that sex work is sex work. It's not any profession anybody aspires to. But for many women, it was the first I'm guessing it was the first expression they had of some kind of independence. They could take what was usually taken from them, turn it into a commodity and make some money. Were women of color uh, involved in in a lot of sex work during the the revolutionary period? Um, I mean, sex work is definitely something that was pretty widespread, you know, certainly throughout American history. Um, In Philadelphia, it doesn't seem that women of color were more involved or less involved. The records on this are very, very shadowy. Um, But I will say that from what I've seen, it seems like they were not disproportionately represented in sex work. Um, You know, sex work, it seems just as it does now, it means different things to different people. You know, for for some, it is empowering to be able to earn your own money. And in that time, especially when there's very few avenues, you know, it could have been. But for many, it was the only thing you could do. It was incredibly, and and still is in in many cases, it can be incredibly dangerous work um, in many, many different ways. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's important to look at sort of look at it in a holistic way and looking at it from the lens of this is part of the economic reality of women, just as there's other professions that were part of the economic reality of women. It's uh, 
it's fascinating. I mean, the story is so much bigger than what we've been told, even in, you know, fairly serious discussions and study of the history of this country. It's way bigger than we're aware of. So stuff like your work is uh, particularly important. Uh, you're a fan of Hamilton? The musical? Yes. Um, you know, I am. I am. I am a fan. Um, As a historian, I'm. Asking, yes, you know, I'm not, not a super fan. fan. I'm not. I, I definitely don't like listen to the soundtrack over and over. Um, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the take on history and anything that makes history more accessible and more interesting to people. I'm all for. You're not falling down about this. My problem has always been Hamilton. They told us some other story of Hamilton when I was growing up. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what should people do if they want to know more about? Your individual work is uh, uh, your website is your name, correct? My website is my name, and I also have blackhistorymaven.com. I would look at both sites, they're fascinating. I would uh, urge people to do that. Uh, and the Mighty Writers is, is also there on uh, the internet. You can look them up. They are, as I said, a nonprofit, so they're dependent upon contributions. It's a great way to spend some money if you got some extra money. Uh, Kaleo, thanks so much. Could you do me a favor and promise to come back and talk about this again? but in costume. It takes me about an hour and a half to get dressed because I'm just not very good with the stays yet, but but yes, I'm getting there. <laughs> is that longer than it takes you regularly to get dressed? Or oh, oh my God, yeah. I'm, 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 are you kidding me? Usually I'm just like, Psh. I sometimes don't even look in the mirror, but uh, <laughs> it's that's bad. Not, that's not true at all. Kalea Williams, thanks so much. You're welcome. And uh, I can't wait until the pandemic gets out of all of our ways. And then you can get back to doing some of these great tours. Thanks again. We appreciate it. At Retreat Behavioral Health, we believe in the power of connection and quality care. We offer comprehensive, holistic, and compassionate treatment from industry-leading experts. Call 855-802-6600 and begin your journey today. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, on the Behavioral Corner.